authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. If that's what you want. Welcome to the 71st episode of Egg Timer Philosophy. Today's episode continues with the theme of consent from last week by taking a closer look at John Locke's ideas about tacit consent to be governed in his 1689 work, The Second Treatise of Government. Locke's Second Treatise of Government is about 140 pages or so, depending on the edition that you find, and most listeners should find it a pretty accessible read. And you can find the entire text of that work with a quick Google search. Locke's second treatise of government is a historically important text within political philosophy circles because it sets forth one of the first comprehensive attempts to justify the legitimacy of governmental power. Locke's ideas in the second treatise fall under the broad label of social contract theory and follow Thomas Hobbes' major work in that area, Leviathan, by about 60 years. And if you want to hear a bit more about Hobbes' ideas about government, you can find those back in episode 51. As you might suspect from the title of the second treatise, Locke did have a first treatise of government as well. His first treatise was published nine years before the second in 1680 and was by and large a critique of a philosopher named Robert Filmer and with it Locke's brutal and compelling rejection of the divine right of kings to justify absolute monarchy. So with that rejection in hand, Locke writes his second treatise of government and really presses on the question of how government and its powers can be justified given the answer, given that the answer can't be the divine right of kings to govern. The answer of consent that Locke settles on here has held up pretty well for the past three centuries, although it's worth noting that you can still find political philosophers who don't think that the consent of the governed is necessary for the justification of a political power or government. Locke believes that political power needs a justification because it does not represent the original or natural state of people. Political power for Locke represents an alteration to the initial position or status quo that people find themselves in, which he calls the state of nature. In this state of nature, people have natural rights concerning property in both their bodies and labor, as well as to pieces of the external world. No one in this state of nature, according to Locke, may legitimately take political power over another or really any power for that matter, without that person's consent. Although it's worth noting that Locke does argue that people may use force against others in this state of nature to protect their natural property rights in the form of self-defense or even punishment. Locke makes this view explicit in his concluding sentence from chapter 2 of the Second Treatise, and this is quoting him directly. But I, moreover, affirm that all men are naturally in that state and remain so till by their own consents they make themselves members of some politic society. And I, no doubt, in the sequel of this discourse, to make it very clear. 
So consent for lock becomes absolutely necessary if we're going to be able to tell any moral narrative about how people move from a state of nature to one of civil society and where the community of people have political power over its individual members. This will only be justified for Locke when individuals consent to this new arrangement. Now, there might be many reasons why a person would want to consent to such a movement. They might find, for instance, that it's difficult to defend and practice their natural property rights against others, so they willingly agree to place themselves under a political power or government so that they can better enjoy their property and with it their lives. That's clearly a strong and reasonable possibility. But whatever motive, whatever motive, Locke's view is clear. Government and its political power is legitimate only when those governed by it consent to it. But right away here, there's a bit of a glaring problem, or at least a glaring tension with this view. Many citizens and residents who find themselves under a political power have never directly consented to this arrangement. This was true during Locke's time, and it's still true today. It's true in my own case, for instance. I was born within the geographical border of the United States, and according to U.S. law, I became a citizen of the United States on the day of my birth. Since that time, quite a few decades ago, I've never actually directly consented to be governed by the United States government. Like just about anyone, I've had a relationship with my government. My government gave me student loans that I needed to fund my college studies. I pay the government taxes to support social services and other government initiatives. And the government assigns laws which I must follow or they'll punish me. But in none of these actions has my direct consent to be governed ever taken place. My situation is not universal, but it is typical of what most people in the U.S. and other countries find themselves in. If we want to hang on to the idea that the consent of the governed is required to legitimately govern, then we seem to have two options. First, we could simply say that absent a person's direct consent, the government doesn't have any legitimate political power over that person. But that's not the only answer that we could give here. We could alternatively follow Locke's path and say that in a situation like the one I described in my own case, which I suspect many listeners might be able to relate with, I've given my tacit consent to be governed, and so my government does have the needed ingredient of consent to have legitimate political power over me. Locke makes his stance most clear in section 119 of the second treatise, and this is from that section directly. Nobody doubts but an express consent of any man entering into society makes him a perfect member of that society, a subject of that government. The difficulty, what ought to be looked upon as the difficulty is what ought to be looked upon as a tacit consent and how far it binds. That is, how far anyone shall be looked on to have consented and thereby submitted to any government where he has made no expression of it at all. And that is to, and that 
to this I say, that every man that hath any possessions or enjoyment of any part of the dominions of any government doth thereby give his tacit consent, and is as far forth obligated to obedience to the laws of the government during such enjoyment as any one under it, whether this be his possession be of land to him or his heirs forever, or a lodging only for a week, or whether it be barely traveling freely on the highway. And in effect, it reaches as far as the very being of anyone within the territories of that government. So here we see the message from Locke is fairly clear. When a person enjoys benefits conferred by a government, even if they're just passing through, then they've consented to be governed by the laws and dictates of that government. You're always free, as Locke would say, to leave and quit enjoying the benefits. And then once you're gone, there's no political power over you anymore. But if you stay and enjoy the benefits, then you have given through your enjoyment your tacit consent to be governed. So let's break this view down a little bit more. First, Locke's stance here towards tacit consent only applies to those who have actually benefited at least in an overall sense, by their government or the government that's controlling places where they're passing through. And that's not true for everyone historically or today. Say you're a member of a group that is gravely persecuted by your government. Well, then Locke's talk of enjoying benefits secured by being governed won't apply very well in that case. But noting this important problem with Locke's defense of tacit consent, we could still, noting we can't apply it universally, it's also true that many people do enjoy substantial benefits conferred by their government, regardless of whether they have directly consented to be governed. How well does Locke's idea hold up in those cases? The answer is that it works in a way that has some moral implications, but probably not with the consequences that Locke suggests. If someone does something that benefits you, especially if the benefit is substantial, then it's not absurd to think that you owe something as a basic matter of decency and reciprocity. Say someone has helped you, a neighbor has helped you for 20 years, and then one day they need your help. And you say to them, I'm too busy and I never agreed to help. Yeah, it's true you never agreed, but it's also true that at this point, you're an ingrate who has a deep character flaw. But I don't think that observation allows Locke to defend the idea that because a person has benefited from government, then they are bound to be governed by that government. This is because no matter how much my neighbor has helped me, say they've helped me substantially. And then they come to me and they say a few years later, I have helped you so much that now, because of all the benefit I have given you, I have power or political power over you. At that point, it seems like I do get to say, hold on, I appreciate the help and I'll return it in kind. But I never agreed to that. 
That's not part of the deal of basic human reciprocity. So Locke is on to something when he suggests that receiving benefits can confer one with a type of duty towards others in at least some way that invokes notions of consent. But whereas ideal, whereas idea likely fails is his suggestion, is his suggestion that this duty involves a tacit agreement that others may secure political power over us by these means. I want to end this episode with a question, and I don't think I have a great answer to it, although I have my guesses, as listeners might as well. Governments generally have all sorts of opportunities to get our direct consent to be governed. They could have put it in bold letters at the bottom of my student loan application, and truth be told, I probably would have still signed for the loans. We could receive a notice once a year on a tax form or other document that says directly consent to be governed or leave. That's simple. So a question here is, why is that a very rare thing for governments to do? And as I said, I don't think I have a wonderful answer to that question, but it does strike me that part of a complete answer here is that for whatever reasons, governments don't see this as an important aspect of their legitimacy. And that might or might not be the case. Until next time on Egg Timer Philosophy, wishing you good philosophical. <music>